Thanks so much for listening to the City Church Podcast. We pray that this message draws you closer to the heart of Jesus and impacts your daily life. For more resources, check out ourcitychurch.org. You can take a seat as you do so. We just take a second and just thank this, this worship team who led us today. So grateful for this team. Well, welcome again. As I said earlier, my name is Mike, and I'm just really glad that you're here. Really honored you spend some of your Sunday morning with us. Um, our lead pastor, Justin, is again just away uh, enjoying few a couple of weeks away on vacation and so he'll be back next week and I asked him I said man what are you, what are you preaching on next week he goes I got a burning word to share I said man that, that guy takes two weeks off and he comes back just raring to go and so uh you can be looking forward to that just excited for all that God has if you've been here over the last couple of months you know that today we are wrapping up a sermon series on first John called surrounded by jazz all right surrounded by jazz anybody been here seven weeks straight is there anybody here? We had a couple from the first service. I know it's summertime, but you guys are the troopers. You've been here for every single week, and uh, you know that God has just been really speaking through this and, and um, really just doing some really sweet things. And so glad that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, you know we are in the very last section of 1 John, uh, chapter 5. If you were here last week, we left off at verse 12, and John has eight more verses for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to begin in verse 13. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. But let's read it together. John writes this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of this message is Lincoln's Wallet. Lincoln's Wallet. Would you pray with me one more time? Holy Spirit, we just say we are completely and utterly dependent on you. We're gathered here longing to hear from you, longing just to hear you speak. And so I pray even right now that we would just quiet the noise, quiet the busyness of the week, maybe even some of the chaos and getting to church this morning. Just leave that behind and ask that you would speak to us. We're listening. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may recognize the name Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick. You may not recognize it, but uh, Florence Chadwick was arguably the strongest swimmer of the 1950s. Born in California, she set to become, she tried to become the first woman ever to swim the 26 miles between Catalina, 
Island and the coast of California. One day she assembled a big crew, a crew who would be in boats next to her, watching for sharks and sharks and making sure that she didn't uh, drown after fatigue. And so she sets out one morning, deciding that today is the day that she will set this record and swim all the way across this channel. So after hour and hour and hour, she swims and swims and swims. And 15 hours in, she's going strong and doing well. Has her eyes, her eyes set on the horizon. After 15 hours, though, this dense fog begins to roll in, and uh, she loses sight of where she is. And so she reaches out to her mom, who's in one of the boats next door, and says, uh, yeah, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I can finish. And her mom lovingly says, sweetie, I think you should continue. And so she continues on for one more hour. After swimming for an hour, she becomes so disoriented and so uncertain of where she is and where she's going to, she just stops swimming, puts her hand up, and just says, that's it, I'm done. And hops in one of the boats. The fog begins to clear as she gets in the boat. And she realizes that of the 26 miles to go between Catalina Island and the coast of California, she has swum 25 of them. And gives out. See, uncertainty has a way of just, just clouding things for us. Like, like doubt is like a fog that, boy, when it begins to set in, when it begins to set on the horizon, it's so easy for us to lose sight of where we are. And as doubt comes rolling in like a fog, boy, it can be disorienting, can it? And I don't know if you've noticed, but it almost seems like doubt has become a, a virtue in our society these days, hasn't it? Things like skepticism and, and cynicism, they seem just to be so prevalent in, in the ways that we even talk with one another. It's like we're always anxious to see behind the veil, to see what's really true. Oftentimes we'll see a beautiful picture and our first reaction is, that must be photoshopped. Like they can't actually be real. We're skeptics. And we're cynics. This has really begun to take root in religious circles as well in, in a lot of different ways. You know, I've watched as, as faith has been crippled by just seeds that have been sown of doubt. I had a good friend of mine who grew up in uh, a city not far from here. I knew his parents well. They loved Jesus. Raised him to love Jesus, and I watched as, as the early teenage years, his, just, his heart became on fire for the things of God. Spent some time down in the Caribbean doing local missions, and really began to feel like God was calling him to overseas missions. Wanted to become equipped to do that better, and so as he went off to college, he, he chose one where he could learn the Spanish language. He chose to go to a secular school because he wanted to be somewhere where his faith would be on display, where he could continuously be telling people about Jesus. While he's down there, though he's studying Spanish, he wants to learn a little more about his Bible. So he takes a, a class on the book of Isaiah. What he didn't know was that the professor of that class actually was an atheist. Didn't believe in God at all and spent the next four months sowing seeds of doubt and misleading information. So much so that after four months, my friend came out and, and as he went into this class with just a boiling passion for God, he left four months later with a simmering agnosticism, just not even sure if God is real. The seeds of doubt were just planted. Maybe you've seen doubt begin to take root in its own, your own life. See, doubt is the silent killer that wreaks havoc in any relationship that it's a part of. Maybe you've seen it in a romantic setting. You began to question whether or not the person loved you or cared for you or was faithful to you. And seeds of doubt 
began to grow into trees of jealousy and insecurity, and before long you saw their whole relationship just crumble. Maybe at work you're unsure of whether or not your boss thinks you're doing a good job, and so you find yourself pushing your coworkers out of the way, taking credit for work they do, pushing yourself to the front of the line so that you can be noticed because you doubted what your boss thought, and your coworkers are looking at you knowing that you're in it for yourself and not for them. Maybe you know what it's like to have doubt just just begin to erode your faith and cripple it to the point where you're not actually sure you believe who God says he is. You're not actually sure you believe that God has done for you what he says he has. Maybe doubt has begun to to rob you of, of the confidence to step into the call God has for you. You see examples of this all throughout the Bible. People who God had, had put a, a massive mandate on their lives. And because of doubt and insecurity, you saw those things just drift away. I, I think of Saul. And I think back on his interactions with Goliath. Imagine if Saul had stepped up in that moment and been the one to believe that God would come through instead of David. How much different would Saul's life have been? See, doubt has, has begun to seep into every single thing. Always just asking, hey, can that really be? Hey, can you really believe that's true? Hey, is that really trustworthy? And it's almost like as John closes his letter this morning, it's almost like he's speaking directly to our culture, directly to our context. Because what John writes about as he closes is this this thing that just, it flies in the face of the cynicism and skepticism of our culture. 33 times throughout his letter, he's written the word know. K-N-O-W. You can know. 33 times. And in these closing eight verses, he writes it another seven times. See, it's like John's saying, in in summing these things up, he's saying, "Before, before you go, if you miss everything else I've said, I want you to know. If you miss all that stuff about love, all that stuff about faith, All the stuff that I've been touching on for the last five chapters, if you miss all of that, just catch this. You can know. You can know. See, he opens this this section in closing. He says, I write these things, okay? I write these things, this letter, I've written this. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. See, there are some of us here that if we're honest, we we can't say that we know that yet. John's writing of a a deep assurance of eternal life that some of us here, we're we're not sure we have that. We're not sure that if we were pressed, we would say, man, I, I, I know that I am God's son or God's daughter. There's a there's a deep part of me that just knows that's true. And so John is saying, listen, before we even continue, you got to know. you got to know the truth about eternal life. And John has spent the last several chapters telling us all about that. What does it look like to know? There's some of us in the room right now who, well, your heart just begins to waken a little bit, just to, to arise when you hear about this ability to know what's next. This ability to know The truth about eternal life. See, John tells us the key to it. Because you say, man, I I would love to know. How do I go about doing that? Well, John wrote it in this verse 13. What did he say? He said, believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in the name of Jesus, John tells us. But believe what? 
What's the instruction from John this morning about what we are to believe? Maybe right now in this moment, you are longing to have that question answered. And I am just glad you asked. Thank you. So glad that you... See, John would have us press back to the beginning. To sense the assurance. To sense how it is to know. Believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in Jesus. Well, believe what? Well, to answer that question, like John does, we have have to go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning of creation when God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit created the world. The crowning pinnacle of creation being Adam and Eve, being mankind. God creates Adam and Eve and says, you're to live in in harmony with me. Joyfully obedient under my rule as I provide for all your needs and cares. Some of you, you've heard the story in Genesis chapter 3 where everything goes wrong. Adam and Eve eat of this fruit, and in doing so, are choosing to go their own way, are choosing to deny God's authority in their lives. And this denying of authority is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is our our choice of of stepping and pressing away from God and choosing our own way. So Adam and Eve did it, and every single one of us since have done the exact same thing. We have at times just said, God, I, I am choosing to go my own way. Now, I get that, that, that this word sin is not popular. It's not something we enjoy talking about. I understand that. Some of us think of sin as violating some heavenly traffic law. And we can't understand why God gets so upset about it. But as we begin to understand that in sin we are choosing to reject God's authority, we understand why the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And not just Not just physical death as sin begins to just run rampant over creation, but a spiritual death as well. There's this forceful separation between our spirit and its creator. And that's what sin does to us. The incredible thing is from the early pages of Scripture, though, God has been saying there is a way. Even as early as Genesis chapter 3, God has been promising that a day would come when he would send a Messiah. He would send a king. And that king would begin to welcome people into his kingdom. A kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. And so 2,000 years ago, on walks Jesus to the stage. Jesus Christ. Christ is, is a word that means the anointed one. Because back in those days... When a king would be inaugurated, he would have oil poured over his head in in anointing oil, it was called. And so in saying Jesus the Christ, saying Jesus the anointed one, you're saying Jesus the king. Jesus the, the promised king. And so Jesus declares the kingdom of God is at hand. That promised Messiah, the the promised king that, that you've heard over the last thousands of years has arrived. Welcome and come home. If you know the story, you know that Jesus the King quickly became Jesus the Crucified. Jesus lives a a perfect life, never denying God's authority. Because of that, he gets hung up on a tree, sinless. And there God pronounces judgment on sin. And Christ dies. And justice is served, and God's wrath is poured out on the shoulders of Christ. But you know, you know the story. It's in, Jesus the crucified becomes Jesus the resurrected king. 
And Jesus rises from the dead and in doing so, God says he is who he says he is and he can do what I've sent him to do. And so those around Jesus begin to realize that his mission is to invite people into the kingdom. That in God raising from in, him in the dead, the promise of scripture is that our sin gets put on the shoulders of Jesus. And the righteousness, the perfection, the sinlessness of Christ gets placed on us. How, how do we go about doing that? Right? That's the question. What do we do with this information? Scripture tells us it's twofold. The first is repent. That we would repent, that we would turn from just the denying of God. We would turn from self. We wouldn't respond in the way and just say, man, I, I, I've got this. No, we would develop this fully reliant trust in God that allows us to turn from the old and say, God, I'm yours. This faith, this, this promise-founded trust in Jesus that says there's a day coming when I will stand face to face with God the Father. And in that moment, I'll say, it's all because of Christ that I can stand before you and the righteousness he's put on me. Not because of any good deeds I've done. And so God calls us to repent and to believe. And that's the incredible assurance that John has for us. And some of us, we feel like we've done that. I feel like I've repented and believed, Mike, but how can I know? Well, if you've been here over the last seven weeks, you know that John has been all throughout his letter giving us tests. How can I know that I believe? He says, man, you'll know because you love God. Do you have affection for God just beginning to spill up in you and spill over? Does that affection for God lead you to love others and lead you to action? Do you find yourself longing to obey him and to live under his design for your life? And he says, do you have the witness of God in you? Is there something in you pulling you to the things of God? Do you carry that witness? And if you say, man, I'm not perfect, but if I'm honest, I take stock of my life and I say, yes, those things are there, then have the assurance that John wants us to talk about here. I've written these things that you may know. Know what? Know about Jesus. Know how? Through the test that I've said. And if you know, feel the confidence that you have eternal life. But that's the first verse, right? That's not all John writes. See, because John was, isn't content just to allow us to skim the surface of faith. John would have us plunge the depths of faith, knowing that there's a next level. See, you and I all know that there's another level that God wants to take us to. God is never content to leave us where we are. He's always calling us deeper, always pulling us into a deeper, richer, more intimate relationship with him. And so what John is describing here in verse 13 is, is knowing the assurance of faith and allowing that assurance to begin to grow into confidence. Confidence that will affect every single area of your life. See, because we know that you don't, you don't have to have all your questions answered to step into salvation. Some of those questions will never be answered. Well, what John is telling us is that Assurance is, is not required for salvation, but it is required for satisfaction. And so this morning, if you're going to step into just the grand things that God has for you, if you're going to really experience that kingdom of, of joy and peace and righteousness, it's done through the gateway of assurance. And so I hope you've been taking stock so that you can say, man, I, I think I can humbly say, yeah, I stand before God, beloved and adopted because of the work of Jesus. That's John's heart for you in verse 13. 
But then from 14 to 21, it begins to describe this newfound confidence that if you will allow it, will well up in you. This confidence that will yield itself, I would say, in three different ways, he writes here, from 14 to 21. And so what I want to look at with the rest of our time this morning is, what does confidence look like in John's eyes? All right, if we can enjoy the assurance of salvation, what does it look like to operate in a position of knowing? What what does that assurance lead to? So let's pick it up. John writes this in verse 14 as we continue. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John gets right to it, doesn't he? He says this. He says, you can have confidence. Confidence in approaching God. Confidence that will change the way you look. See, he understands that this assurance is is the flavor, if you will, of salvation. The flavor that you can enjoy a life in Christ that is dull. You can enjoy a life in Christ that is, is without a whole lot of fruit. Almost like you can, you can nourish yourself with food that doesn't taste very good. You can eat all the kale, broccoli, and green things you want and be fully nourished. You can go to bar pizza and have cheese. Or you can have mashed potato and bacon. You know what I mean over a bar? See, assurance is the thing that's going to that's give life to your salvation. So that's why John is saying, I want to show you confidence, but you can't get there without the insurance. Because as that assurance begins to bring life, it begins to yield fruit. And so that's why he says, confidence. And this confidence, the word, can be defined in this way. Cheerful courage, boldness, and a freedom in speaking. It's like John is saying a lot of what the author in Hebrews said in verse 10, 22. And maybe you've heard this. Where he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. See, our assurance tells us that we can have confidence that God hears us. That's John's first thing here. And because God hears us, he responds to us as we pray according to his will. And confidence yields first prayer that matters. Prayer that matters. It's the first thing that, dwell, that begins to, to grow in us as confidence takes root. As we begin to learn that God is for us and faithful and merciful and kind, we can't help but know that he hears us. And there's great mystery in prayer. I understand that for sure. But all throughout Scripture, we can't get away from the fact that God responds to the prayers of his people. And so let us approach the throne with confidence. Because it yields prayer that matters. And as we continue working our way through the text, we stay in this topic And and John writes in verse 16 and 17 some things that admittedly would take a long time to explain. There's some of the most confusing verses in in this Bible even, certainly in this letter. And we'd be here for two or three hours just explaining the various meanings of, of those verses. But suffice to say, if we're to sum those up, John tells us you can pray with confidence. And how? With the compassionate heart of God. If you were to sum up verses 16 and 17, it would be this. That God's longing for you is that you would come to him with his heart of compassion for others. That you would carry in you a deep love for those around you. 
But some of us approach these verses and it says, let us pray according to his will. And we begin to just step back. Because we say, man, I can never really know the will of God. So how, how, am I know, how am I to know if I'm supposed to pray to the left or pray to the right? And so we begin to step back and just pray like, God, your will be done. And we just say, I, I trust you. And that's noble. But it's so passive. That's not confidently approaching his throne. That's not at all what John is describing for us here. I believe what John has for us is that this heart of compassion would understand that Jesus' command says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We understand that in heaven there's wholeness and restoration. And we begin to understand that, that God's desire is that we pray that his heart of restoration and wholeness would take root in all the lives of the people around us. That we could begin to, we could begin to imagine with him what it would look like if our, if our neighbor found him. We begin to imagine what it would look like if the addicted became free. If lost were found, if hopeless people became hopeful. See, God has put inside of each and every one of us a deep compassion and love for others. And he's saying, come to my throne about that. In confidence that I will hear you. In confidence that I care. In confidence that I've placed you in that, purpose, that person's life for a purpose. Now we would begin to say, God, who is it that you've put in my life? For your purposes. And I'm going to seek your throne and seek your face, believing that you want to work and move again. Because we know prayer matters. So John continues on. He says this. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Perhaps for the first time in his letter, John is straightforward and right to the point. Right? We know... That anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Okay, thank you, John. We understand here that John's not talking about perfection. As though there's, there's no sin ever to happen in the life of a believer. There's a process of becoming more like Jesus that truthfully we'll never fully see realized until the day we see him face to face in eternity. But what John is describing is that it, it's incongruent for me to carry the Holy Spirit and yet live as if I don't. I sit with guys often and they just they describe being pulled back into things as though they have no control. I look them in the eye and I say, man, this is not you. You are a son of God. This is not you. They say, oh man, if you only knew. It, I, I just don't have the strength. It's, it's nonsense. You carry within you the Holy Spirit. We heard all last week about how through that, Jesus has overcome the world. And in doing so, and carrying his spirit, you have the same power. And the second thing that confidence yields is a victor's spirit. Because you know that there's nothing that Jesus hasn't won for you. And the words that John uses here are so interesting as he goes on to talk about what that what that victor spirit looks like. He says this in verse 18, and maybe you caught it. He says, The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. 
That word, keeps, is, is a really interesting word. It, it talks about Christ keeping us, and it says this. It says he attends carefully and guards what is owned. What is owned. I love that. That right now Jesus is attending to us carefully and guarding what he has won and what he has purchased. Man, what a sweet reminder for it, it is for me to remember who I, who I belong to. And what Christ has won for me. And as I begin to just allow this victor's spirit, it changes the way I approach everything. The phrase that John uses here, cannot harm. It's this really interesting word picture in describing that Satan cannot harm. It's almost like the Christian is, is slippery. Like he cannot cling to you. He cannot grab you. And so some of us here have allowed just old habits not to die. And it's time to let them to die. It's time to let them die. Because God is saying to you right now, I have won that for you. You think that Satan's got his, his clutches in you. And it's time for you to just let those things die. Adopt the spirit of a champion that says, that's not who I am anymore. God has called me to move this way. And from here on out, I'm moving in that direction. You may remember the promise of Jesus in John chapter 10 where he says this. He says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, he says, and they will never perish. And he says this. No one can snatch them away from me. That's a promise, is it not? No one can snatch them away from me. That's what Jesus says. If you are in him and you're his, no one can take you out of his hand. And so, so John says for us this. He says, you can be confident that God hears your prayers and that he wants to move on your behalf. You can be confident that he has won victory for you and is calling you to step into it. And then he writes this to close. In verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I think John is telling us here the third thing that confidence yields. It's hope that's eternal. Hope that's eternal. See, because when I understand that eternal life awaits me, it reorients the way I see everything. It reorients the way I see life's difficulties because God has promised to uphold me in the middle of them. It reorients the way I see my surroundings. See, society would have us live as though today is the only day. Tomorrow's not promised, so get everything that you can today. And the great promise of eternal hope is that you don't need to live as though today is all that matters because a day is coming when you will step into eternity. And what would it look like to begin to live like that was what matters more than today? See, believing in a hope for eternity breaks off even life's greatest fear, death. Because I don't need to fear death. And I think this is why John closes this, this seemingly loving and kind letter with really a bizarre sentence. Like, can we be honest? Like, as we read that, it's like, John, that's a little out of left field. Keep yourself from idols. No, like, love John. No, like, so good to be with you. Can't wait to see you next. He writes all these things about love, and then he goes, keep yourself from idols. Boop! Put a stamp on it. It's ready to go. It's like, John, that's a, that's a strange way to end a letter. But I think what John is getting at here is that 
When this confidence begin to take, begins to take root in you, it changes everything. And so don't, don't bother with that silly nonsense. It doesn't make sense in light of eternity. It doesn't make sense in light of who you are that you would mess around with things that are fleeting, with things that have no eternal value. So keep yourself from those silly little things, those priorities that make no sense in light of who you are, in light of what Christ has done for you. See, that hope for eternity, hope that's eternal, boy, it re- reorients the way you see the world. I don't need to gather up everything for me now because a day is coming. I'll see Christ face to face. And so I'm going to spend my time and my money and my energy and my resources focused on things that last, things that matter, things that have eternal significance rather than just passing significance. I know as I read this, and I read John's closing remarks, you know, it's like he paints this, this beautiful picture of what the confident life looks like, doesn't he? Paints this beautiful life of what it would look like to understand that God hears us and to walk in confidence about our prayer. To really adopt this victor spirit to know that we can overcome. To understand that we're to live with eternity in mind. It's like that, that is a beautiful way to live, right? And I, I read that and I go, How? How do I begin moving in that direction? How do I begin making my life look more like the one that you've painted for us, John? I think it comes in two stages. And we've seen this throughout his letter. The first is that we begin to renew our mind. If tomorrow you were to drive down to Washington, D.C. and go to the Library of Congress... You'd find in there a little blue box with a small label on it that says content, contents, the president's pockets on the night of April 14th, 1865. For you history buffs, you know that was a fateful night in our country's history. It's the night Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And so Abraham Lincoln is killed and they empty his pockets, they prepare him for burial. And they find inside his pockets five really simple objects. They find things like a pen, a pair of glasses, a handkerchief. They find some money. And they find a wallet. As they open up the wallet, they find just newspaper clippings. Not money. Newspaper clippings. And they read these newspaper clippings and they they realize that what they are is something from a few weeks ago that a reporter had recorded. John Bright was a a British statesman of the day and had been talking about the affairs of the country, the United States. And in describing Abraham Lincoln, described him as one of the greatest men who had ever lived. And we look back on Abraham Lincoln's life and we say, yeah, that's really easy to see. He did incredible things for our country, was an incredible man. Some people call him our greatest president. We hold him up high, but back in those days, very few people thought that. The country was in the middle of just a bitter and bloody war. You know he struggled, if you know anything about Abraham Lincoln's life, he struggled with depression and anxiety. He really felt just the crushing pressure of a country that was being ripped apart by the Civil War. 
And so you can almost imagine Abraham Lincoln in the White House, sitting by candlelight, reading these words that someone across the pond in Britain had written, calling him one of the greatest men who had ever lived. Abraham Lincoln knew the power of reading things that were true and reminding himself about them, that in life's most difficult moments, he could hearken back to those things and remember who he was. And some of us, as we begin to move forward in confidence, the first thing we need to do is renew our minds. And just like Abraham Lincoln looked at words on a paper written by man, it's time for us to begin to look at the Bible written by God to us and for us and remind ourselves who we are. And allow the promises of God, some of which we talked about last week, to become, begin to take root in our minds, to renew our minds. All around us, we're getting assaulted with lies. You're worthless. You hear these. You'll never amount to anything. You can't have confidence in yourself. Look at the way you look. Look at that failure. Confidence. And yet the word of God just lays all of those lies bare. And it's time for us to begin listening to new words on a page. And our mind begins to transform. And as our mind begins to transform, it affects the way we live. It affects our hands. It affects our actions. As confidence begins to grow, as we begin to step out with the new things we know about God. My little girl's two years old, and um, ever since she was young, as far as I, I can remember back, every time I'd need to change her diaper or change or you know, whatever, get her dressed, we'd be up in her room and get her all buttoned back up, and I'd stand her up. And I'd just say to her, I'd say, fall, fall. And at first, she kind of looked at me like a dog when it doesn't know what you mean, where it's like, Rrr? you know, like no idea what I'm talking about, you know, because she's like 10 days old, you know. But over time, she began to understand what I was looking for. Because what I would do is I would, I'd put my hands underneath her arms. And I'd say, fall. And I'd pull her towards me. And as she got older, she began to understand what, what I meant when I'd say that. And so there'd be some times when she'd take my hands, put them underneath her arms, and then jump. And every time I caught her. So now she's about two. And as soon as I get her buttoned up, we stand up and I say fall. And she takes a running leap off that thing right into my arms. Because I've shown her that I'm going to catch her every single time. Confidence grows as trust develops. And for some of us, it's time to, to develop some trust in God. It's time to step out. See, God is renewing our minds and telling us who we are. And it's time to begin to put those things into action. And allow him to prove himself as faithful. It's time to begin to pray fervently like God listens. And then watch him move. It's time to begin to bring that, that loved one, that sister who doesn't know him, to him. And watch her heart be transformed. It's time to look at those things in your life that you know don't belong. And kick them to the curb and say, you will not have a part of my life anymore. By the power that I carry within me through the Holy Spirit, you do not belong here anymore. And as you do so, confidence grows. It's time to step out. Because God is calling you to lay aside things that won't last. Pursuits 
hobbies, or ways of thinking that you know they don't make sense in light of who you are. They don't make sense in light of eternity. And it's time to step out and lay those things aside and allow God to fill you with a newfound joy and a newfound peace. Imagine what God wants to do in you if you'll allow your confidence in him to grow. And he's laid out that platter for us and it's time for us to begin stepping into that. He's given us all that we need. If we'll allow just those things to be stirred up in us. written on those pages about who we are and about who he is. Would you stand with me? I've asked the band to lead us in a song called Ever Be, a song that speaks to the fact that from the dawn of time, there have been people around the throne of God praising him. And you and I, as we step into eternity, will be a part of that. And for eons and eons and billions of trillions of years, we will sing the praises of God. And how will that reorient the way we act today if we know that a day is coming when we do that? So I would ask as you sing, you just would allow the affection for God just to begin to swell up in your heart. You'd allow just gratitude for what he's done for you just to begin to overflow. And allow yourself just to just to look forward, just for a second, what it's going to be like in that day when you see him face to face. You're able to finally express fully all that he's done for you. All that he's won for you. And for me, for us. Picture that day. Lift your voice and let's sing together. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.